John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 24, Entry 313.EZ2116, Certificate Number 30932, Dagen H. We've been doing Addenda for two years? That yes. seems nuts. It does seem nuts. It's been, so, meaning it's been two years since we left iHeartMedia? That is true. We have. It's been two years since we have hearted... Media. Two years of sweet, sweet freedom. Uh, you never, um, you never appreciate freedom like you do once you've been let out of a oppressive corporate contract. You know, freedom in the very in the very end did cost us. Uh, it cost us in blood and it cost us in treasure. I don't think it cost us in treasure. We turned down we turned down considerable uh, monies from iHeartMedia, but the show's more profitable now than it would have been. I think. That's great. And that makes me feel good. The, um, and thank you to our uh, Patreon supporters who are listening to this episode. The, in fact, they're the only people listening to, unless they have pirated it. Don't Did do you torrent that. this Addenda show? Don't torrent it, uh, because your contributions are what keep us alive. The Dog and Eight show was about the day in which Sweden changed the direction of its driving. That great day. And I... <laughs> We all look back on that historic, <laughs> historic day. I think at the very beginning of the show, we realized we did not know how to say Dagen H, because how do you say the letter H in Swedish? It is almost certainly not. Hach. It is almost certainly not H. Did we try a couple of things? I don't think we bothered. Ha? Yeah, I, th- I, I feel like in typical omnibus fashion. You said Dagen H. We, we did not care enough to look it up. <laughs> but uh, now, what? whatever this is, years after the fact... We heard from Michael, a, uh, who served a uh, Latter-day Saint uh, mission, two-year mission, in the country of Sweden. This was only in, uh, in May of this year that oh, we that did true? Dog and H. Okay, so, so for seven months, no one has told us how to pronounce the letter H in Swedish. So Michael is coming to us uh, from our broad Mormon fan base. Yes, our, our extended Mormon family, we like to call them, our, e- our EMF. <laughs> He served a two-year mission in Sweden. It's a um, long time. Dude. The Swedes really need. <laughs> you know what the Swedes <laughs> love? That's what they love. They want somebody to try to chat with them about, yeah. about Mormonism. Somewhere in Azerbaijan right now, there are two blonde boys with pocket protectors going door to door. And this, this guy's in Sweden. Can we come into your yurt and share a short <laughs> message about families? 
Uh, it does seem like a pretty plush assignment, but I was in Madrid and my wife was in Paris, so yeah, you know, can't really complain. Well, I guess there's no class system in Mormonism. <laughs> I think it's, um, in my case, it was having five years of high school Spanish. It's oh. a pure meritocracy. Oh, I didn't realize that you already knew Spanish when you went to Spain. Well, I didn't. I took five years of high school Spanish. Oh, right. So you could count That's a ten. very different thing. <laughs> I'd read the first four chapters of the great Mexican novel Doña Perfecta over and over. But Yo Latengo is what you could say. Uh, Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> Yo quiero Taco Bell. Do you know in Spain, Yo Latengo is called I Have It? They really are. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael says we actually missed a trick. We, you know, we actually could have told a funny joke, which would be a first in omnibus history. All right. Go ahead, Michael. Because the letter H in the Swedish alphabet is pronounced ho. Oh, dog and ho. So this was dog and ho. Do you think that's what they said when they, dog and ho. when they all started driving the opposite direction? <laughs> dog and ho. And they, I bet they did. They all spin their cars or their little, uh, their little sobs around. I bet they did. You know, dog and ho sounds a lot better than dog and H. It was a sob story, that episode, I just realized. You know, we if you had to spell H, it would be what? A-I-C-H? A-I-T-C-H, I believe, is, the, is the canonical dictionary spell. Whereas ho is quite a bit simpler, H-O. The word H is one of uh, the two words in English where you can drop four of the five letters, letters and it will be pronounced the same. Did we already cover this on the show? No, how is that? You can drop the A-I-T-C and it will be pronounced H. A-I-T-C-H. The same is true of the word Q meaning a line. You can drop the last four letters, and it will still be spelled or pronounced Q. Oh, well, interesting. Not really. <laughs> Entry 1368.ez2046. Certificate number 27330. Union Dixie. During this show about the history of the uh, Southern uh, rallying song Dixie, Confederate right. Uh, informal Confederate anthem, Dixie. Uh, I think one of us said that Dixie was probably a common college marching band number from Southern schools, although, you know, in the past, not in the here and now. So you think it would be like one guy on a trumpet? Uh, it's very popular. Uh, <laughs> very custom, uh, very popular custom uh, car horn sound. Yeah, yeah. It plays the full song. So you have to hope that you have to hope that the person you're hanging at is still continuing the bad behavior for the next 45 <laughs> seconds. We actually heard from Will first, and this is what I like, firsthand testimony from Will, who was in a college marching band at Jacksonville State University. Mm-hmm. Uh, where their Checks out. their nickname is no less than the Marching Southerners. Uh-huh. I presume that's the band and not the name of every sports team. The marching southerners. Is the football team the marching southerners? Because <laughs> when you think about marching, when you think about marching, really, the South was on the wrong side of the most prominent marching in the Civil War. They got they got the hell marched out of them. Sure, they didn't have to march as far to get uh, to get crushed under the Union Jack boots. They had Sherman marching toward them. That's right. They were they should be anti marching. Um, but yeah, the marching, he said the, he was at a marching Southerner through 2015 and they played an arrangement of Dixie in this very decade. Oh, wait a minute. If you were from Jacksonville, you would have to do quite a bit of marching to get up to where the battles were. That's true. Uh, so they played Dixie in 2010s? 2015. And he said, uh, Troy University's band, the sound of the South, as if, as if he had to tell us what so, the, what so, the Troy University was called. So not, was called. not, uh, not Troy, New York. 
No. Troy, Troy, New York, uh, I don't know if it has its own university, but they don't play Dixie. Yeah. Um, but Troy University, the sound of the South, had Dixie Not quotes. the song of the South. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's banned. They had quotes from Dixie in their fanfare through 2019. Quotes from Dixie. Yeah. So, you know, clearly the non-racist parts. Oh, or maybe by fanfare he means they came out and went... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a brief... I don't know how much of a medley it is, <laughs> right. but a brief little introduction to their <laughs> halftime show. <laughs> it's got Louie Louie, and then it's got Jump by Van Halen, and then it has Dixie. Um, so yeah, in Alabama, at least as recently as 2019, it's not weird to hear a college marching band playing Dixie. Are you trying Dixie. to tell the future links that there's institutional racism that survives in Alabama? Well, here's the thing. Will gives us context. He was like, this isn't to denigrate the bands, just to point out that Things like Dixie that are perceived widely as insensitive and inappropriate aren't necessarily seen that way everywhere. Huh. Yeah, we've heard, Will. <laughs> we, we have been watching the news. Uh-huh. Entry 467.EC0306. Certificate number 23621. Fiji's Declaration of Independence. We got a couple notes from Colin um, before we get to the Declaration right. two of Independence. Note, two, note, two separate notes or one note that had two clauses? Two separate notes sent on two different occasions. He doesn't store up his feedback. In the heat of the moment when he's listening to Omnibus and he's got something to say, he just jumps into that parasocial relationship and fires us off an email or a, or a comment. Do you think he's one of these young moderns who will send like nine forward texts? One after another, instead of saving it all up and just sending one text? Uh, I'm kind of turning into that. Oh, no. Are you? I think it's because I have two teens that always text that way. You never do that with me. You send one concise text. I don't like when you see the lines forever and then suddenly you see three paragraphs. I feel like I've been ambushed. Oh. You know? Oh, I see what you're saying. I like to have the the conversation uh, dandled out for me. But aren't you afraid that you'll reply and then you'll over, you'll talk over their reply? I feel like that's more likely when you're doing the long stuff. I see what you're saying. Like the short ones are more boom, 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 right? Boom, boom, boom. You, but, it, but it also feels a little bit like you're talking over me and I should just oh, wait until oh, you're I done. See. With that's your, true. You, sometimes I do have that where I'm like, well, is this, yeah. is this the Go last ahead, one? Slam me again with your one sentence. Well, Colin, in a recent addenda, I think maybe the most pre, the most previous one. The most most mostest previous one. The most recent one. You were lamenting that your shows only receive corrections on the addenda. Hmm. First, you were complaining that they weren't mentioned. Yeah, and then you complained that they were mentioned because then people were correcting you. But then it's it's very clear that that changes from addenda episode to addenda episode because sometimes it's that you know everybody's just it's a vibe. Sometimes America is in the mood to correct a Ken episode. Sometimes they're in the mood to. Love on a John episode. You really like this it's a vibe thing. Is that another young person uh, coinage? Again, uh, you're calling back a thing that we will release in a month. <laughs> the show on which I say vibe a lot. Listen, that will not happens, be out for a month. That happens every addenda, so when are you just going to go with the flow? It's a beloved tradition now. <laughs> From now on, store up the addenda for a month or two and then listen to it, and then you'll catch all the references. No, the it's right the other order. way around, because they, they hear the Easter egg and then they look for it. Ah, it's foreshadowing. Right. So they're like, oh, right. The, where did I hear that The Vibe how did I know, thing? How did I know Ken was going to be yeah. vibing in a new show? Okay, so it's The Vibe. So what does our correspondent say in his multiple texts? Well, first, he wanted, to send you, uh, he wanted to send you something that was not a correction, 
So about, oh, about your old uh, German telegrams show from yeah. back in the day, he has an additional German telegram, but it's about the Holocaust, so it's a bummer. Oh, how is that not a correction? Isn't he implying <laughs> that I should have included it in the episode? No, oh. I think he's saying you were wise not to, but oh, here's, a, here's, a, here's an additional telegram that he wants to add to the party. I guess it was um, it was something that was not actually, nobody understood the references at the time when the British intercepted it, but listening to it, you know. Oh, after the fact. Yeah, like around the year 2000, people were like, oh, they are, it's Hermann Hoffler to Adolf Eichmann listing the number of people transported to each camp. Oh, boy. So, in, you know, in 1943, the British were like, well, what oh, no, no. I say, quite oh, a few numbers here. What's Triplinka then? Must be hot dogs. But now it's quite clear that it's, um, yeah, it's a, quite a uh, dark reference. Oh, that's a drag. However, Colin has a reference to my show that is not a drag. Oh, Yay! wait. He's going he's gonna to compliment you? Yes. So he's All not right. helping. Good job, he? Colin. He's not helping. No, that's fine. In Fiji's Declaration of Independence episode, we were talking about um, how all of our founding documents are behind glass in Washington, D.C. Gradually decaying, even though it's, it's even though glass. It's xenon or right. something. <laughs> well, I think we were worried about, you know, what happens if somebody just blows up the National Archives. Sure. And he says, never fear. Um, there is a Hall of Records in Mount Rushmore. Do you, do you know this oh, story? Oh, in Mount Rushmore. So Gutzon Borglum, the sculptor of Mount... I was just there. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I was just there in, in, his, uh, in his inner sanctum. In Lincoln's nostril? Uh, I thought there was a door in the back. Yeah, it, there's a door in the back. Yeah. But you're not allowed to go there, right? No, but you can see pictures of it uh, in this little tourist enclave, and it's like, oh, how cool. The funny thing is there wasn't really anything there for the longest time. Borglum thought, oh, there will be a cool, like, exhibition hall there above the heads where you can go see all these documents under glass. You know, it'll be a great little slice of Americana. It'll explain all about why these presidents were chosen. And I guess the original plan, he had, like, to the right of the heads, he had this, like, timeline swooping down the mountain with important dates for American history. Huh. If you ever see it designed, it looks terrible. And right. We're, we're all lucky that he died of something before he got to do that. Or, Weird scroll. Or, or ran out of money or his chisel got blunted or whatever. Yeah, or put, uh, put Lyndon Baines Johnson up there. Yes, he never had <laughs> he never had any pressure during his lifetime to add some weird fifth president. But um so that so he but eventually they had to move Lincoln to the right of where he was going to be, and that was where the head entrance was gonna be. So he built this kind of hole in the rock back behind Lincoln. Yeah. But there was never anything there until I think very recently. Um, you know, the Hall of Records was never used. But in in around two thousand, I think, or in maybe in the nineties, um they actually dug the area out and put essentially um, a time capsule in there. You know, huh. like Borglum actually wanted the Constitution to be up there behind Lincoln's head. Huh. Um, and so today we've, uh, you know, we've honored his vision, but in a very kind of dumb, stripped down way in the manner of most visionaries when his work finally saw. So what's back the there? All the, all the 1950s mad comic books? <laughs> yeah, it's all those um, uh, Pogo and Peanuts paperbacks from your grandparents' house. <laughs> they're all put in a box and they're buried in South Dakota. <laughs> it seems like South Dakota does have weather events. Um, you know, when you... When you Tornadoes? Well, or snow. I mean, when you dig something into a rock and hope to preserve it for thousands of years, you want it to... Continue to be preserved even when the lights go out, right? When the power goes yeah. out and the pumps are no longer working, you want it 
buried someplace that's not going to fill with water, that's not going to freeze. And maybe not in a place that's literally called the bad lands. Oh, they are bad. Here's the worst place in America. So bad. Let's put the Constitution here. So there's a time capsule there, but it's not a cool one like Omnibus. It basically just has copies of stuff like, Hmm. here's a copy of the Constitution, here's a copy of, and a bunch of kind of historical stuff about the sculpting of Mount Rushmore, isn't it? Right, right. So it's not the Hall of Records he envisioned, and it certainly doesn't protect anything that could blow up if the National Archives got bombed. But at least if everything goes uh, sideways, the one billion copies of the U.S. Constitution that are in <laughs> that are in Federalists' homes that around I've, the that country that I've been mailing out every every month, <laughs> the chick tracks that contain almost all of the Constitution, uh, even if all of those are lost. There is still this sarcophagus. There will be one copy. So look, if you're in a future where the United States Constitution has been lost because all the Federalists burned them immediately once the once it got cold out, mm-hmm. um, head to the Badlands of South Dakota or possibly the Black Hills. These are two different places. I'm, Black I'm Mining Hills of Dakota are where uh, <laughs> a young boy named Rocky Young boy Raccoon. named Rocky Rushmore. Yeah, and then dig up from – if you see a giant rock that looks like Abraham Lincoln hmm. – Look for the big square door behind it mm-hmm. and dig up a copy of the Constitution, and then you can you can recreate the American system. Yeah. The worst, worst porn movie ever. Behind the square door. Entry 786.LK0161. Certificate number 21831. Middle initials. In the previous Addenda show, we had a lot of people... Um, giving their own middle initial experience and questions, including somebody who wanted to know why the FBI of the late 20th century was full of first initial middle name people like J. Edgar Hoover and W. Mark Felt, There's a, a lot of conversation over on my personal Patreon. They're at patreon.com slash John Roderick. Uh, where We're going to edit that out. Where every Omnibus episode also has a discussion happening. And I think the- Oh, is that true? Yeah. Is I it think, lively? It's very lively. And Can I, think, I see it without donating? No, I think you have to donate to my Patreon. Sorry. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think the why are all the FBI uh, guys, why do they all have uh, middle initials? That conversation might have started over there. We have now, finally, for the first time in four or five years of doing this show, finally, we have mm-hmm. what all podcasts should have, a secret FBI informant. Say so what? We have somebody from within the Bureau who has asked us not to reveal his name. Someone who works for the FBI, you're saying, yes, is also listening to Omnibus and wants us to have an inside glimpse. If you do choose to use this info on a future show, he says, please do so anonymously. Okay. So I want to thank Deep Mike, Uh our nameless informant at the Bureau. Well, he has a name, Deep Mike. For giving me the straight scoop. That's not his name name. Oh, I see. Here's why there was a long tradition or legacy of people using first initial middle name at the bureau. When you join the FBI as an agent, says Deep Mike, you have to pick your official name. And there, there's some Whoa. there's some very strict guidelines about what that can or cannot be. If you go by your middle name, you cannot substitute that as your first name. And if you go by a nickname, you can't use that nickname. For example, Deep Mike could not use Mike as his official FBI name. What if I had decided to be Jack M. Roderick. Then you would have to be John M. Roderick for the purpose of your the little nameplate on your desk or your badge. I see. And then you could call me Jack, but it wouldn't be in the... Yes. I see. And in fact, it, it would be um, 
illegal for me to do so. I but, could call you that, but I would um, immediately be arrested. Could I be J. Morgan Roderick? That's the thing, yes. If you're somebody who goes by your middle name, like let's say you've always been Morgan Roderick your entire life, you join the FBI, which I'm sure you're considering doing even now in your 50s. I thought about it for many years. Um, your badge could say J. Morgan Roderick. That's the only way you could get the name you go by on the badge. Huh. And so for a gener- of generations of agents who went by their middle names. Edgar. Yeah. Old Ed Hoover. That's what we called him. Uh-huh. Um, so Mark Felt ha- was not allowed to be Mark Felt officially in the Bureau. He had to be W. Mark Felt. Uh-huh. I don't know how that explains all the Watergate weirdos who also used, you know, E. Howard and old, J-, yeah. J. Gordon. Yeah, old Gord, Gord Liddy. But thank you, Deep Mike, for that penetrating look within the Bureau. Also, can you tell us how many of your fellow agents um, have like weird Trump stuff at their desk or yep. or post about QAnon. That's the next thing we want to know. I want to know. Uh, the fact that we have an FBI agent uh, embedded, I feel like there's a lot. We, uh, there are a lot of ways we, we could not exploit it, but certainly use him, use him as a source. So far, we've only um, used him to get the scoop on middle initials, and maybe that was not the best use of our asset. Yeah. Did I ever tell you about the time during the WTO protests where I was walking around late at night after... You know, between days when... When you were throwing rocks through windows? Yeah, when the smoke was clearing and I had stolen all the Nike tennis shoes I could carry. And a a person stepped out of the shadows and said, hey, John. And I was like, you know, hello? And it was a guy I'd gone to college with. And I said, what are you doing lurking out here in the dark in the middle of the WTO protest? And he said... I joined the FBI. He was very excited. He was like, oh I, boy. I joined the FBI and I'm an FBI agent and I'm here on FBI business. So like his first day. And I was like, wow, what are you doing? And he was like, I'm protecting the delegates that are all huddled inside this, uh, this hotel. I was like, well, that's the coolest thing. I know an FBI agent. He was like, by gosh, you sure do. And then we parted ways and I didn't keep in touch and I've regretted it now for over 20 years. Uh, because I, you know, I've got a man in, in, inside, but, uh, and he was a, you know, he was a gee golly gosh kind of uh, friend and I just feel kind of stupid. Maybe it's deep Mike. Maybe it could he's be the, come out. Maybe it's the same guy. Yeah. There can't possibly be two FBI agents listening to this content. I wouldn't be so sure. Did I tell you about the time I was in Washington DC and a, and a fellow texted me and he was like, want to meet, uh, you know, I've got a challenge coin for you. Do you want to meet out in the, you know, on the national mall? And I met him in front of some building and he actually was wearing a three-piece suit and mirrored sunglasses. He stepped out from behind a tree and he handed me a, um, he handed me a challenge coin and he worked for ice. And he was like, we're not very popular right now, but we're not all bad. Handed me as, this. As you can tell by me giving you this weird coin. <laughs> handed me this incredibly weird, uh, challenge coin from like high up in ice. Ice uh, upper echelons. Ice station zebra. And then he disappeared behind a tree again. And, you know, there are a lot of trees on the National Mall, but what? it's not like you go behind one and go in a door and go down some stairs, although maybe that's apparently, where they go. Apparently you do. So I think we've got a lot of spooks listening to the show. Well, it's funny you should mention challenge coins. That leads us to... Entry 14151K0814. Certificate number 4418, The Wave. We got an offer from a listener named Tony. Um, Deep Tony. <laughs> deep Tony. From now on, all correspondents <laughs> are increasingly deep. 
Um, we talked about the wave at uh, the stadium at the University of Michigan. Tony's a big fan who offered us tickets. She's a season ticket holder. Oh, this is Tony with an I? Yeah. And she says... Season ticket holder at Michigan. I, this is exciting. She says her favorite games are maze outs. As, as you may remember, the colors of the University of Michigan are blue and yellow, but for some bizarre reason, they call the yellow maze yeah. with an eye. Yeah. At a maze out game, you don't wear the normal navy that most fans will be wearing at a University of Michigan game. You wear bright yellow. So everybody in the stadium is wearing bright yellow, and it's one of these things that hurts your eyes. That's got to be sensory To look overload. at. Um, and she says recently, uh, at, at the most recent game she went to, the fans were spent more time congratulating themselves for pulling off the yellow outfits than they actually did about the win. Um, they love the wave, but uh, her dad likes college football, and he gets so mad when something that matters is actually happening on the field, and, and people, and are, people doing are doing the wave. the wave. My dad used to get mad at that, too. Sit down! It happens in... Um, so I think somebody emailed us to say that they were mad that nobody did the wave at a playoff baseball game they were going to. Or oh. I think maybe it was on the um, on the Facebook group, and somebody else was like, that's not really a playoff thing. <laughs> when baseball's boring, you have to do the wave. Right. When the game actually matters, why don't you sit down and watch the so game? So where are we in college football right now? We're in the middle of the season, right? Could, yes. Do you think you and I could fly out to Michigan and, and Tony would uh, would get us into a game? Uh, Tony made the offer, but here's what's doubly interesting. Our friend Deep Mike... Back no, to Mike. No. Yes. He doesn't have some something to add here. In our note from Deep Mike, he said that he uh, he heard on the recent Cahokia Mounds show Tony's offer of Michigan football tickets. I must have mentioned it on that show as well. And he says, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to out my Deep Mike, but he says that there's an FBI team that works that stadium every game. Oh. And uh, he would love to give us the background on. Uh, you know, what's some of the security backstage of a major American football game? He says it's fascinating, and there might even be challenge coins in it for you. So now that we know that your main interest is having um, skulking middle-aged white men with short hair give you coins. Not necessarily. There are FBI agents of all shapes and sizes. Of all races, colors, and creeds. Mm -hmm. um, Although I wonder if the FBI is uh, is progressive enough to have trans agents. I'm not sure what the current policy is, but I've got some questions. Uh, well, you're in luck. We have an informant. So now I'm picturing you and I fly to Michigan. Tony gets us in. And then we have access to the <laughs> FBI like security detail that's just sort of blending in. They're all wearing maize too, except they have little pork pie, maize pork pie hats and three-piece suits, and then we get downstairs. So Tony's like, how do you like them apples? I got you into the game. And then we're like, guess what, Tony? Uh, we know a guy. Yeah, we're going to take you downstairs and show you the secrets. We have a, a very elaborate plan for this college Seems football game. super fun. It would be the first college football game I've been to in a decade. Do you think, do you think your fame is such at the moment – that they would turn the cameras on you and go, look who's here. It's television's Ken Jennings. Not at University of Michigan. You don't think so? It happens to me at the Mariners, but but I mean, it's a much bigger stage. What, the University of Michigan? Yes. Yeah, I know, but... It's like 100,000 people there. Who else is there? Kelsey Grammer and who else? I mean, you've got a... You, you've got... You, your star is ascendant. 
or at least <laughs> at least it's holding constant in the firmament. I'm not quite at Wolverine's level. Yeah, maybe not. But that's the goal. That's the dream. Entry 987.ps8207. Certificate number 50227. The Prince Philip Movement. In that entry, we talked about the sun setting on the British Empire uh, in a literal way. Mm-hmm. And I guess I did not credit, um, that's an XKCD thing, that's a Randall Monroe strip about trying to calculate when, if ever, the sun, the sun set on the British Empire. And I could not actually remember what the answer is from his book. It's one of my favorite of his strips. But Andrew uh, wrote in to remind me that uh, according to XKCD's research, oh, because... Andrew knows... Randall's work even more closely than you do. Apparently, even though I interviewed um, Randall at a book event for this show, or, or at a book event when this What If book came out. If you go on YouTube, you will find Randall examining a story I told where I described stealing my father's plane, and he described, uh, well, you, you can just go and see Randall. Just Google, just YouTube Google Randall uh, how did John he, How did he know this story? I told it. Oh, okay. And he was there. Were you, you guys are on, are on a panel somewhere. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I told the story, and then he very quickly, maybe it was the next day. I don't know. He had done, a, he d- did a whole presentation based on me stealing my dad's plane. It's, it was quite fun. Uh, the answer to the question, when did the sun first set on the British Empire, is it has not happened yet, and that's almost entirely due to the Pitcairn Islands. Oh, of course. There's still one British territory in the South Pacific yeah. where... As you were going to say. Yeah, Fletcher Christian's descendants are still there having sex with each other. The Bounty Mutineers um, Incest Island, as I like to call it, the BMII. And because of its placement there, you know, because the sun rises there, you know, before it goes down in any other spot of, you know, British overseas territory, um, the sun has not set on the British Empire Hmm. yet. Um, Where where do we stand on it? You know, does that comport with Marxism? (laughs) <laughs> or do we want do we want the sun to set on the British Empire, or are we so uh, so like imbued by the classics that 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 would be something we would that, we would all cheer it on the second the sun goes down on the British Empire? You wouldn't lament it. It's or or is this one of those that divides us where you would be there, you know, cheering? You'd be you'd be you know carrying Pramila Jaipal on your shoulders, <laughs> waving a. Uh, I wouldn't want to be there on ideological grounds. I'd want to be there on. Um, on geography nerd grounds. That'd be very oh. exciting to see the first sunset on the British Empire in, in hundreds of years. Would you fly there on that day? Would you fly and watch the sun Absolutely. finally set on the British Empire? The fact is we do not know when that's going to be. Um, barring any kind of future territorial change, there will be an eclipse on Pitcairn Island in the spring of the year 2432, writes, okay. writes uh, Randall Monroe. Um, unfortunately, by the time the eclipse hits there, the sun will already be up in um, in the Caribbean. Right. So that's just Randall showing off. It is, basically. Yeah. But he does make the point that if eclipse counts as a sunset, if the sun being occluded by anything, not just the horizon counts, then even without any territory changing, the sun could set on the British Empire someday if there's a total eclipse at some future point that passes over the Pitcairn Islands at a time when the sun is not yet up in the Caribbean. Let's uh, let's throw the judges here. Ken, is an eclipse a sunset? It is not, and I don't know why he doesn't get into that in this piece. Yeah. Um, 
Although from the perspective of animals, or aminals, as we say, um, they act in, in during an eclipse. They act as though the sun has set. The birds get very quiet. Yeah. During an eclipse. Yeah. The, uh, the I've only seen one total eclipse, but boy, were the birds freaked out. I was on a farm during an eclipse and watched as the farm animals went to the barn and all had sex. They had sex with each other, uh, but, irreg- but irregardless of species. That's right, cross species. And now there's a pigikin. <laughs> Uh, living on a farm in Romania. But as soon as the sun came out, their terrible bestial orgy ended, and they returned to pecking and grazing as if nothing had ever happened. That's exactly right. The birds began to sing again. What a bizarre thing to <laughs> see. Entry 1323.SS0701. Certificate number 31961. The town of Bentnex, or the town of Bentnex. Of the next that are bent... This is the town that's um, evenly split between Adidas and Reebok partisans? No. no what is it? As Puma, you say, as Puma you say, and Adidas partisans. Adidas. Adidas. And uh, Puma. Oh, I just did the thing where I called back something that hadn't happened yet. Yeah, there you go. But you did it earlier with Marxism. No, you did it. You did it twice. No, you did it more. Um, for some reason in that show, you asked if my brother and I would ever do a podcast together. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I said, I don't know if our... Um, how our relationship would cope with a candid, no holds barred podcast, just because he's very opinionated. Oh, so he'd be throwing some at- attitude well, at you. Well, you asked for an example, and I st- frantically sp- searched my brain. Searched? What's, yeah, what, what's sure. the expression Scanned there? You I racked, racked my brain. Yeah. That's what I did. I was racking it. Um, to try to think of a, a dogmatic opinion my brother has that he would not mind me joking about on a podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I remembered the fact that although he owns thousands and thousands of records, he will not buy a record that has, I think, fewer than 10 Oh, you did tracks. say that. That's Do you right. remember this? Yeah, like, you were, you, he objected to, even if it was an hour and a half long record. Yeah, even if it's six long, even if Side 2 is a, is a freeform jazz blues exposition in front of her. Right. Even if it's crowd. Judas Priest's Rockerola, right. one, one of the great albums of the 70s. That does not count. I see. It must have double digits, discrete tracks or songs. That's what an album is to him. Yeah. Sufficient uh, quantum of, of time and effort on the part of the musician. And we got a letter about this? No. I went to lunch with him. Uh, okay. <laughs> Last time I was in Utah, I was speaking at a thing, and I went to lunch with him, I think the same day this entry came out, and he was like, hey, you guys were talking about me on the show today. Oh, good. He listens to the show. And I said... But does he listen to the Does he listen to the addenda? It's not clear. He's probably not listening to this, so we can say what we want. Now I can list all the actual terrible opinions he has okay. that we would fight about. What did he say? Number one. Yeah. No, he... Um, he, was, uh, he enjoyed the fact that his um, dogmatic musical tastes had been mentioned. And he said, uh, I guess at, at some point, we mentioned a Long Winter's record that has fewer than 10 songs. Is that right? Uh, there's one where there's a hidden track. Okay. So there are nine songs listed, but 10 songs and which, there. Which album is it? It's our first record. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he said, I was very excited. And you said that in the Town of Bent Next Show. He's like, I was very excited to hear John say there's a hidden track on the first Long Winter's LP. Because uh, otherwise I couldn't buy that. Yes. Believing that there were nine songs. And now that I know there's a 10th hidden track, I will go buy the first Long Winter's record. Oh, fantastic. So over tacos, he committed to buying this record. Now that he knows you uh, you went to the trouble to record a sufficient album-worthy number of songs. It's a, it's called it. The Worst You Can Do Is Harm. 
And the uh, the tenth song we didn't put on the track listing because we weren't sure about its copyright. Because it has it's the, a cover. It has the F word in the title. It has an F word in the title, and there there's actually my dad appears on that recording, and so does the uh, the white German Shepherd pony. Does your dad say the F word? <sighs> he does. He did a lot before he died. It but, was but not on know, that track. But I don't think you hear him on the track. Does he where... sing backup vocals? Does he play he tambourine? Does. He does. He sings backup vocals. You can hear him kind of. You know. He, uh, he, how's his, how's his singing? Although he taught me the song, he weirdly forgot some of the lyrics. Well, can you say what the song is now? Or is it, are you still worried about the copyright? Police? Yeah, no, the, uh, the, song, Cap the, listen to the song is called there, uh, shanty town. There's a, there's a shanty in old shanty town. Okay. And, uh, it, it's one of our family songs. We always sang it on road trips and at holidays and, and you think it might still be under copyright? Is it some depression era? Hit? Yeah, yeah oh. it is. Uh, there's a shanty in town on a little plot of ground where the green grass grows all around, all around. That's not the origin of the green grass growing all around, all around, is it? Oh, the roof's so Because I learned so that in a separate song. Worn, it touches to the ground. Uh, that, there, are a, there are some references in the song that seem like they also appear elsewhere in popular culture. And I never figured out whether... Shanny is Shantytown is quoting the other references, yeah. or whether it's the source of those who invented the idea of green grass growing all around, all around. Uh, you I think don't know. it would be obvious? There's prior art. The roof so torn, so badly worn. I have no idea. Um, but your dad singing is a little pitchy. Uh, no, it's not pitchy. By the time he recorded the track, he was in his 80s, and uh, he's doing it in his signature the the voice of his that I use so often. Where he's like, there's a shanty in the town on a little plot of ground. And you can hear he's an old man. And I didn't know you were doing your dad when you did old man voice. Yeah, that's all old man dad. When he was younger, he had a voice like mine, which is... Sonorous. Sonorous, but also, you know, there there's an aspect of my voice you would have to describe as... Annoying. No. <laughs> uh, uh, melodious, but also uh, a little phlegmy, right? I mean, I'm always kind of... <clears throat> I've got a lot of... Stuff, sure. you know, it's a, That's it's, passion. It's a lot of passion. It's passion welling up. And so he always had that uh, that kind of gruffness or rumble. And over time, it just starts to kind of, you know, you lose That's your the, future. Yeah, you don't have the, quite the, the same. And then eventually you become, <laughs> and then you die. And you say, nurse, nurse, but she can't hear you because you don't have the... You don't have the basso profundo you did as a younger man. Will you let me sing on a long winter song if you let your dad sing? Do would you? Yeah. Are you saying you're equivalent to my dad? Well, I'm just saying I'm. Um, he's not a talented singer, apparently, and I, no, I certainly am not. He, he was. He just he lost his. Uh, he lost all of the. Well, the, I haven't lost it yet, but I never had it. I would. I'll definitely put you on a on a on a song, Ken. I was listening. I was watching. How that. about if you do the rap in the middle? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Break it down, yo! It's Ken, Ken Jennings. Jennings. Hip hip parade. I was watching the um, Todd Haynes Velvet Underground documentary. Have you seen it yet? So that keeps coming up in my suggestions, and I was like laughing, like lol. Here's that's because that's <laughs> Why how I were laugh, you laughing? lol. Because the computer knows me too yeah. well, right? And it's just like I bet you're gonna like this, and I was. Was like okay, I will. I'll watch it, but not right now. And then every you said you said the mm. c word. Every time I go on the television now, it really puts it there. Just like I think what you want to watch is this Velvet Underground documentary. And so, just to be perverse, you were choosing not to watch. I'm just it. like, no, you know what? I'm not going to watch your stupid Velvet Underground 
documentary that you think I want to watch. They really emphasize something which I never heard anyone say before, which is really that Nico can't carry a tune. Well, you know what? Merlin Mann said this the other day, that Velvet Underground isn't good. Like, there's nothing about them that's good. It's just that they're great. And what do you do with that? You know, they're they're terrible. Lou Reed can't sing. None of them can. No, but you know, I when I heard the first record, I was like, boy, I wish Lou Reed was singing lead on these the Nico tracks? Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody knows yeah. a thing she does to please. <laughs> but, you know, that's... So I can't carry a tune, so I feel like I could sing lead on some Nico-like song of, of, of your record. Will you do it in a German accent? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> all tomorrow's parties. It must have seemed really cool to the, uh, the the famous 100 people that listened right. to that record. It made them start a band. But uh, but no, it's not good. It's one of the things that kept me from being a dedicated hipster when I was younger because, uh, you know, it's a choice. Like, do I listen to Velvet Underground or do I get really into Jethro Tull? And one of them is very good There's at no their... no contest. <laughs> one of them is very good at their instruments. And the other has cool leather jackets. Yeah, cool leather jackets and wraparound sunglasses. I made a fateful choice then. Entry 283.jb0306. Certificate number 25901. The Cotsworth Calendar. This was the proposed calendar that would divide the year into 13 four-week months. Yep. Um, which I means still support it. It means businesses don't have Q1 through 4 anymore. But Which that, never made any sense right. to me. I mean, I feel like that's a weird, that's an artifact of having a 12-month calendar, not a reason to have a 12-month calendar, right. Right? right? Like, if you have four 13, if you have 13 four-week months, then you can do head-to-heads with months and you don't need the quarters. Yeah, although it's weird then to divide um, seasons into four. It's true. You would not be able to have three-month seasons. Although you could have one, you could make summer longer. We have a couple. Well, we have a couple correspondents that uh, had some notes. Scott noted on Facebook that the real problem with four—I <laughs> keep saying that—with thirteen four-week months is that your birthday would always be on the same day of the week every year. That's not a problem if your birthday is on Friday or Saturday. It's super cool, but it creates a, a an elite class of Friday and Saturday birthday people, yeah, and then the rest of us feel bad. That seems pretty small. I wouldn't mind being in a a Tuesday birthday, except I'm not. I was born on Friday the 13th. Well, there's no guarantee that that would hold. They're not, the, the new epoch might not start in a year where your birthday's on Friday the 13th. Uh, too bad. I was born in Friday on Friday the well, 13th, do, so I get to keep that forever. No, that's not how it works. What's, what's your, what day of the... I was born on Friday the 13th. What do you mean, what day? What year? I refuse to answer on the grounds of, uh, of retcon, of, uh, of, of uh, internet security. You've been lying. Yeah, retcon. You've been lying about your age <laughs> for all this time. No, I just People don't. People are going to find You know, out. it's just like, tell me your social security number on the internet. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> what was your first pet? So I'm not saying, not everybody can keep the day of the week they were born. That's not how, that's not how any of this would work. No, John. but in this case, I would, because it would be based around, it would be, it would be called a Roderick calendar. Kevin pointed out that um, it is actually, there's much of the world where uh, I talked about the accounting system at my company moving from semi-monthly to bi-weekly and having to program that. And about how was it Kodak that actually kept their 13-month system very, you know, into the 1990s? Mm-hmm. Kevin was one of several people who pointed out that 13th month salary is a thing. Um, there are many countries in the world where an, an, an the end of your bonus comes in the form of a 13th month salary. I like it. Um, 
There are other places where the 13th month, you know, the, your salary is divided into 13 four-week periods, and the other one comes, you know, half of it in the summer and half of it at Christmas or something. So that's not all that unusual. No, that seems right. Um, in fact, there are some countries where there's a 14th month salary. What? That's meant to, how does that work? Oh, there's two equal parts. You get a 13th month at the end of November and the end of December, and then you get a mandatory holiday bonus. Wow, Brazil seems like a paradise, apart from the, <laughs> apart from yeah. the fascism and the COVID. Yeah, but they've got and they, the, the murder of indigenous people and the favelas. And the, the, the deforestation. But they do have the bossa nova and the um, and 14th month bonus. Well, and those little tiny bikinis. Fantastic. Um, we also heard from... We also got a long story from listener MCP, which I guess is... Is that his MC, MC name, or is that really I think the name of the person? I think he's the master control program from Tron. <laughs> he has what he called a... He, he said my story about trying to rejigger my company's calendar from bi-weekly bi pay, pay to... Wait, from bi-monthly pay to semi-weekly pay. Yeah. Reminded him of a fairly famous story about uh, an early Microsoft employee, which is extremely long and doesn't really have a payoff. And that's why I think I should tell it here. Good, good. There's an early Microsoft employee named Joel who was in charge of making Excel have its own programming language. Excel, Excel had very limited macros in their spreadsheet back in the day, so you couldn't actually tell it to do what you wanted. I mean, it's, it's pretty bad today. You're already into this story, what, what? Right? Huh? What? It's pretty bad today, but it was much worse then. Yeah. So there's a... There's a lot of disagreement in Microsoft over how to make Excel more flexible. Boy, I, I, you can imagine, you're on the edge of your seat already. I was just joking about falling asleep, but when you started talking about the internal disagreement it's at gonna Microsoft. It's going to get so much crazier. <laughs> Joel decides the new Microsoft programming language of Visual Basic. We don't know Joel. We're just, this is just an apocryphal story. This is a story from MCP about okay. Joel. This is okay, a much-told story in the world of um, computer programming, <laughs> a subject you love. Oh, okay. Is, is this a story you've heard before? I had not. Okay. But it definitely did remind me of my rejiggering the calendar story. Yeah. So he um, decides to put Visual Basic into Microsoft Macros. Now, dates in a spreadsheet are an important part of the spreadsheet, but they're often just represented by a number. Like, the date in the spreadsheet will be the number of days since a certain beginning date, and the spreadsheet will know to render that not as, you know, 12,008 days, but to, re to render that as um, March 18th, 2008. Boy, this is an omnibus episode I would skip if I if I listened to them. <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> go on, go on. He, uh, in goofing around with this, he is surprised to find that um, Visual Basic... This and, is Joel that's goofing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's surprised to find that Visual Basic and Excel actually have different starting dates for how dates are represented, what? even though they're both Microsoft products. Okay, now you've got my attention. He, <laughs> you had my attention. <laughs> now you have my interest. He goes to his uh, his Excel team and says, hey, why do we start on January 1st, 1900 instead of December 31st, 1899? Um, and yet the dates seem to be coming out the same. He can't okay. figure it out. All right. And they're like, well, put in February 28th, 1900. He does so, and that turns out to be day number 59. Okay. Then they say, okay, now put in March 1st, 1900, and it's day number 61. And he says, oh, there's a date missing. February 29th, 19th. Oh, right. But it's divisible by four. There should be a leap year. And then he thinks, no, wait. It's divisible by 100. There shouldn't be a leap year. And he's told, actually, it's if it's divisible by 400, 
then that overrides the other rule, and there Whoa. is a February 29th. Okay. Anyway, so he's like, wait, so we got this wrong? The dates are actually wrong in Excel because we believed there was not a February 29th, 1900, and there is? And they say, well, it's not really a feature. It's a, it's not really a bug. It's a feature. We, we did this to be uh, equivalent with the other spreadsheet, a uh, prominent spreadsheet of the day, Lotus123. We wanted to be able to import Lotus123 now, so we borrowed their... And was Lotus wrong? That's his question. So was Lotus wrong? And they say, yes, but we think they knew they were wrong. They were just, uh, they had minimal memory requirements to work with, and they decided it was better to be simple and to know that they would be a day off in January and February of 1900, should that ever come up. Tricky. So he has to present to Bill Gates his proposal to put Visual Basic as the engine behind Excel macros. Because back then, anytime there was a policy change at Microsoft, there would actually be a face-to-face with Gates. Oh, okay. So Joel has never met Bill Gates before, and he's, he's um, you know, just odd to watch the great man himself walking into the room. Yes. And then he's surprised to see Bill is carrying his the specs for his proposal to put Visual Basic into Excel. Okay. And he's even more shocked to see that there's marginal notes. He's like, Bill read and... And as Gates starts to page through it, there's notes on every page. Okay. And he thinks, Bill's well, into it. what's going to happen here? And he later finds out that this is what happens at these meetings. Gates just drills down in increasingly arbitrary detail until he gets his project lead to say, I don't know. Oh, this is what he wants. He wants to know at what point he has stumped his guy. And this is kind of how he keeps in mind, like, Who's, that he's smarter than yeah, everyone. Yeah, and who on his team is is smarter than who. You right, know, right, like, I see. So if he can keep going and you always have an answer. Right. And for the first time ever, the questioning ends at four questions because Bill Gates says um, something like, you know, he's he asks, you know, how is this going to work? Is it compatible with this? His third question is something about, you know, will dates work? And his fourth question is about, well, will the dates be the same as other Microsoft products? And because Joel had just had this conversation, he was able to say, yes, except for January, February, 1900. And the room gets very quiet. Everybody looks at him like, first of all, how is that the answer? And second of all, how would anybody know that? Right. And Bill Gates says, oh, well, uh, all right, meeting adjourned, you know, because. Where is he going to go from there? He had asked the most specific question possible. And Joel just happened to know, yes, except for January and February of 1900. So apparently... Uh, for many years, Microsoft products had this inconsistency over whether or not February 29th, 1900 was a leap day. And this gave me flashbacks to having to do my own calendrical programming for our payroll system back at my old job. It's giving me uh, flashbacks to the Hilbert Hotel uh, episode where... So there's an infinite number of leap years, (laughs) and each one has an infinite number of Februarys. Entry 182.ps4303. Certificate number, and this is a short one, 6374. It's a rare four-digit certificate number. Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Hatteras. Hatteras. Get your mad Hatteras over to the tea party. Um, Joe, apparently, listener Joe Hawkins, not satisfied by our two recent entries on lighthouses. Yeah. Says we should do a lighthouse, uh, sorry, we should do an entry, we should do a lighthouse, we should do an entry about St. Catherine's Oratory, a medieval lighthouse on the Isle of Wight, which uh, a uh, 14th century lord had to, was forced to build as an act of penance for plundering wine from a shipwreck. 
Wow. He got in trouble for plundering wine from a nearby shipwreck, and as a result, I guess, make the punishment fit the crime. He had to prevent further shipwrecks by building a fine lighthouse. Isn't, haven't there always been rules about uh, about plundering shipwrecks? Aren't, isn't about it, flotsam and jetsam? Doesn't it just belong to you if you find it? There's definitely, uh, there are a lot of governing rules about what you can take from a shipwreck. Um, I wonder if they changed back in a time when the king owned everything. Yeah. If something gets lost at sea, it belongs to his majesty. Yeah, I bet that's true. And the Lord of Chael was like, no, I'll, nobody will know if I take a few of these. Uh, we also heard from, this is timely, we heard from Michael, right, uh, like the same month in which we uh, published our episode about the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, the National Park Service announced it was soliciting a public comment period for a renovation of the lighthouse. Hooray! They're going to be repairing it. Apparently, it's got, um, what are the problems? Deteriorated interior and exterior elements. It's missing character-defining features. It needs like the a, giant smiley face that used to be on the roof? It's not clear. It should, now, be, it should be on the bulb. Now, wait. They announced this after we recorded the yes. Lighthouse episode. Yes, they released this news on September 17th, but the the meeting, the in-person meetings, or sorry, the one in-person and one virtual meeting were on September 28th and 29th. So by the time Michael this, sent this to us on October 4th, we had already missed our chance to fly to Buxton, North Carolina, and make our voice heard. Yeah, the, our, this episode came out on uh, on September thirtieth. Oh, but we recorded it. It came out September. It came out the day after the last town meeting on repairing the lighthouse. That is some omnibus kismet. We just missed it. If we had just pushed that out a few days earlier, but we couldn't have gone back. And I guess we could have added an addenda to the episode itself, but we've never done that. No, but the excitement that an, uh, a podcast appearing about the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse would immediately cause thousands of people to storm these right. public comment sessions and give, uh, give passionate give, testimony in favor <laughs> of the lighthouse. Heated shouting and that its happened. historical integrity. Yeah, right. Um, guess what? There's been heavy visitation. It has limited formal pedestrian walkways. And so now it's just surrounded by like a patch of ugly dirt. Like they moved it to a field and all the grass is dead from all the... Tourists stomping around. Oh, isn't that the way? So the government's going to put in a clearer circulation route for visitors? A clearer circulation route. Well, they, you know, they did that at uh, Stonehenge. It's true. You used to be able to wander around. Yeah, that was, those were the days. Now you can't even get within 100 yards of it. But I like that you don't park your bus right next to the yeah. to the megaliths like used to happen. Like now you go to a beautiful uh, visitor center across a field and you kind of have to Go under a tunnel. You wander out across the downs. Yeah. I like it a lot more. I I, uh, I bought two, not one, but two pairs of socks that have Stonehenge on them. Stonehenge. And I still wear them. They could be trodden upon by a dwarf. Uh, if, I did, if you were a dwarf. <laughs> I did. Uh, we were lucky enough to go to Stonehenge on tour on a day where there it was raining and there's not a lot. Uh, there weren't a lot of tourists there. Nice. So we ended up these wonderful photographs of ourselves with Stonehenge in the background and no other people around. And, uh, you know, as, as all of our fans know, I use those as my, I put them on my business card and I use them. I, and actually I have them on a giant flag that I fly whenever I go to a Seahawks game. Every time I see that in a movie, somebody just kind of wandering around Stonehenge. I'm or like, Stonehenge. Stonehenge. The H is silent. Mm -hmm. I just think that that's baloney. I mean, you, you can't get that close. Yeah. Where are the hundreds of uh, people taking pictures? We also heard from Jonathan, uh, an Albany native now living in New Hampshire. 
apparently we um, disparaged the the fine city of Albany, New York during the. I think I was talking about being unable to find good trivia facts about Albany, and so Jonathan sent me a series of Albany trivia facts, and guess what? Each one is more boring than the last. <laughs> Did you know Albany was run by Mayor Erastus Corning from 1942 to 1983, the longest tenured mayor of any U.S. city with a population greater than 100,000? Wow, Corning. Way to go. Um, did you know that William Kennedy won a Pulitzer in nineteen eighty four for a novel called Ironweed that was set in Albany? See, these facts are just amazing. These make <laughs> these make me want to move there. Did you know the now defunct Albany Patroons of the now defunct Continental Basketball Association had a fifty and six record in nineteen ninety? The Patroons. Yeah. They uh, they went fifty and six. And twenty eight and zero at home. Uh-huh. I mean, it is pretty impressive that um George Carl was coaching the CBA. Albany Patroons at that point, because I think he was a, wasn't he a former Sonics? No, maybe he was a future Sonics coach and an ex-Warriors coach at that point. I can't remember. Did you know that a Patroon is a person given land and, uh, both given land and granted certain manorial privileges under the former Dutch government yeah, of I, New York and I New Jersey? I think the double O is a Dutch Patron. Patroon. So there, it's, it's, it's actually a kind of tequila. It's but, but Patron. How, yeah, Patron. But how interesting that the Albany would name their basketball players in the honor Patroons. of its, Well, that's just how threadbare its um, <laughs> its romantic history is. That the best thing it has is Patroons. No, that's not true. Jonathan points out it's also home to the grave of Chester Allen Arthur and the childhood school of Herman Melville. Oh, the, and uh, a mansion owned by Philip Schuyler of uh, Schuyler family of Hamilton fame, and a building with a statue of the RCA dog on top. And the Bung Factory. I have to click on this link because what is a Bung Factory? The Bung Factory. Uh, well, they probably make bungs for bung for, holes. For barrels? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes is that what they did? I assume so. I mean, I wish I had a bung for my bung hole. Entry 514.pp0203. Certificate number 25968. Games Buddha wouldn't play. You know what time it is, John. It's Games Buddha Wouldn't Play time. That's right. And that's the <laughs> round where we check in with our baby elephant, Essowit. Oh, how's Essowit doing? From the Well, I don't know. I'm following the link right now. From right. the Nairobi Nursery Unit of the Sheldrick Wildlife, whatever it is. Yeah. Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. Let's see. Let's see what was going on on September 4th. Mm. As the orphans finished their midday bottles of milk down at the mud bath, mm. they settled to browse on greens. As Zewadi was happily browsing on her favorite greens, little Bondeni and Essowit came over to steal some from her. This sounds like one of those emails I got from my kids' chi- child care. Yeah, except in this one, you have to actually go in and apologize to someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not responsible for Essowit's greens stealing. And guess what? What? It was amazing to see Zewadi stand up for herself. Yeah. As they tried to grab some of her branches, she pushed them away and managed to chase them off. Here, here. Good Ex- job. Except, wait, shouldn't we be rooting for Essowit? Well, but... He's bu- our elephant. But bullying is never countenanced. No. Here at Omnibus HQ. No. Leave Zewadi alone, Essowit and Bondeni. Yeah. Um, also- Although we still love Essowit. It's not, you know, you can have, you can be strict on the topic of bullying, but still love your elephant. Uh, so it later that afternoon engaged in a fun strength testing match with Kinye, um, barreling through the forest and pushing over any bushes 
that were in their way. Oh, that's fun. What a precocious elephant. Let's see what else is going on here. Oh, there were some visitors on September 10th, and uh, after Esowit finished his midday bottle of milk, he stood near some of the guests and walked. Uh, oh, he tried to be a little naughty and kept trying to crawl under the rope to um, chase to play with some of the kids that were visiting a cordoned off area, and the keepers were very busy. Yeah, keeping Esowit. I guess this could have been a terrifying thing that is now being told in a cute way. This is in Nairobi. Yes. Why don't we, after we go to the Michigan game, why don't we get on another airplane and fly to Nairobi and see our elephant? Maybe we can get over the over the fence and play. We need somebody in the Kenyan uh, Internal Security Bureau to give us a behind-the-scenes tour of an elephant uh, shelter. If there are any listeners in Kenya, even if you're not associated with the government or this particular elephant sanctuary, please write... And let us know you're there, and we'll work something out. Oh, on September 11th. Um, a day that will live in infamy. infamy. Oh, I'm wrong. It's September 10th. Never mind. Oh, a that's, day a, that will, that's a day that, a day that will not live in infamy. Yeah, has no Oh, this is a fun one. Uh, Bondeni and Esoet were chasing around a troop of nearby baboons. They were trying to pursue some of the younger ones, but as soon as they saw the elephants coming, the younger baboons would climb on their mother's back and run away which would confuse and excite Esowit and company. You can't do both, climb on your mother's back and run away. It would require that your mother run away. I think that's true. Um, but it's kind of like I say, uh, I drove away in my car. He ran away on his mother. Hmm. No? I don't know. I feel like maybe one of the things that will get us to Nairobi is if we op- offered a copy edit their uh, reports about the elephants. I think they said it right and my summary was wrong. Okay. On September 11th, Kindani was bullying Esowet. Oh, this is a day that will live in infamy. Infamy. But luckily, Laro was nearby and stepped in to defend Esowet from Kindani. Yeah! Oh, so wait a minute. Esowet was on the on the receiving end of the bullying that this time. This time. Yeah. And Laro is the matriarch, and she stuck, stuck up for little Esowet. Um, Ro, the next day, Roho and Esowet followed Shukuru around. Um, grabbing greens from her mouth, more, so more bullying. But Shakuru is, seems happier to share. Yeah. Oh, so it's now a question of sharing, not of them taking. It should be consensual. You yeah. should ask before you pull greens out of somebody's mouth, right? It, it seems like there aren't that many things for elephants to do. Yeah, as I read these descriptions, I mean, that's why I was very excited about the baboon chasing, because this, this had never come up in our dispatches Yeah, that's before. pretty exciting. It would be interesting if you put a pumpkin inside of a block of ice— and slid it out there across the savannah. Like, how much fun would those elephants have? It looks like this is all summed up by the uh, entry of September 13th, where we see that Esowit is becoming quite a playful little bull. He always loves his games, and when he is full of energy and charging around the forest, he doesn't seem to mind challenging any of the bulls in the nursery, even the bigger bulls. He'll even challenge... You're not going to believe this, John. Go, go. He'll even challenge Kinye and Rojo. No way! Yeah. That's my boy. Esowit. Good job. Um... Well, thank you for um, thank you to uh, ooh, who was it who sent us who helped us by sponsoring? It was Meg. Thank you for thank you, Meg, drawing our attention to Esowit. I sent I sent a contribution to the Sheldrake Wildlife Trust. I did too via you. <laughs> Entry two three eight dot JB four zero two one certificate number three seven seven six eight. Cocaine hippos. Chris was one of many viewers to um, alert me to the fact that the cocaine hippos, Pablo Escobar's runaway cocaine hippos, are back in the news. 
Have you been following this? You know, I'm not following the news anymore because it serves no purpose and is only bad. So you don't know about the zebras in Maryland? I don't. There's zebras running around Maryland, John. Impossible. Uh, well, that's definitely the kind of thing that distracts the media from the bigger issues of the of the cocaine hippos in Colombia. Okay. But um, there are now 80, if you recall the episode, there are now 80 um, Escobar and Escobar-descended hippos in an ecosystem. Not, not designed to support 80 hippos. No. Um, where they're having an outsized environmental impact and a threat to human safety. But maybe they're going to actually make it possible to, to transact the Darien Gap. By just deforesting it and creating giant hippo trails. Or you could just ride on their backs like, yes. like a baby baboon yes. across the Darien Gap. I'll get on a hippo's back and run across the Darien Gap. I'm imagining a hippo just leaping over a ravine even though I know that the Darien Gap is not a ravine. But it does encompass ravines. I'm sure it does. The Fulda Gap probably encompasses ravines. Yeah. Well, the Fulda Gap is a ravine. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, mind. it's a wide ravine. It's a valley. It's a dell. It's a dale. It's a glen. Uh, there have been recommendations in Colombia that like they should just start, the government should start killing hippos. Oh boy. But instead, instead we found a middle, a middle ground, a middle way where, um, the Colombian government has announced they're going to start solving the problem by sterilizing. No. You're you're against hippo eugenics. Usually in a situation like this, there's some Texas billionaire who airlifts the hippos to his enormous ranch Builds a crazy hippo pond, and then it's some kind of weird Texas thing. That's why you can't tax billionaires. Yeah, because they won't have a weird hippo pond. Look, there's 80 hippos. That seems like a manageable number of hippos. I don't think Texas billionaires are famous for bringing uh, new arrivals across the border and taking care of them. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's not what usually happens in that part of the country. Yeah, but Texas billionaires are the ones that generally fly to Africa to shoot hippos. So why wouldn't you get these free hippos from Colombia? Bring them up and turn it into some kind of shooting ranch. Oh, it's going to be a shooting gallery. Yeah, where the, where your other Texas billionaire friends can come and hunt hippos that are in a completely weird environment. President Bush arrived at his Crawford Ranch today to, that's my broke-up voice, mm-hmm. to clear brush and shoot dozens of hippos, as he does every weekend. Or it could be those, uh, the, the other dingalings out there in, in southern, southeastern Oregon who are... The Bundys? Yeah, who are mad at the government for trying to charge them to let their cows graze on public lands. If they imported 80 hippos, that would cha- completely change the game. Well, what if we imported hippos to just stampede their lands up there and be like, hey... Take that. Do you, oh, you want government help now? You want government help against the hippos? Well, okay. Wait, 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 I know. Even better. We we buy 80 hippos, we take them to Albany, then Albany has a claim to fame. It's the one interesting thing about Albany. Finally. There are 80 hippos that they live there. They can change the name of their damn minor league basketball team to the Albany Cocaine Hippos. <laughs> and the, Right, and the thing is the hippos are all jacked up on cocaine, and clearly they're sex crazed. Imagine the, the, uh, the coke fiend hippo mascot. With, yeah. with the like the wide open eyes and maybe one that twitches. Sure, agitated hippo. <laughs> come here, come take a picture with us, agitated hippo. There are so few hippos in the world relative to humans and probably even baboons. It seems like some crazy billionaire should take one second from trying to blast themselves into space and take these hippos and put them somewhere. Basically, you're undoing the work of another crazy billionaire, in this yeah. case, Pablo Escobar, who was probably a billionaire in, in pesos or whatever. Right. Um, Almost certainly a billionaire even in dollars. Or, or in grams of cocaine. Yeah. 
what the Colombian government has decided to do. Previously, they were um, surgically sterilizing. I presume the bulls. It's got to be easier to much easier to neuter a hippo than to spay one. Yeah. Although I'm not speaking from experience. No, here. but you just you know you snip their bits. But now they've got a new solution. Um, you know they've only managed to do eleven um, vas- hippo vasectomies. But the uh, regional environmental agency is now using darts lased with a contraceptive drug. Okay. That they can now shoot, I presume, at um, at lady hippos. At, yeah, bulls and cows. Cows, cow hippos. Bet it is. Sow hippos, whatever. Um, is it more of a pig or more of a cow? It's more of a cow. Right? So. Well, it's a, it's a river horse. Well, it looks like. Are a, they mares? It sort of looks. Yeah. Are hmm. they stallions and mares? It looks more like a pig than a cow, but it acts more like a cow than a pig, and it is more of a. It's like an underwater horse, horse pig. In any case, they are shooting the females with gonacon. Uh, this is a method that's been used on wild horses in the American West, on kangaroos in Australia, and wild cattle in Hong Kong. Where what? you so rarely see a, a stampede of wild cattle just charging down the street in Central or, or Kowloon. I really, I'm going to write down the wild cattle of Hong Kong because that is an omnibus topic if I've ever heard one. But check out the follow-up sentence. Scientists must now track the efficacy of the drug by measuring hormone levels in hippo feces. Yeah. So they're going to be out there checking hippo pies to make sure that um, the hormone levels match a... Uh, a female hippo, a, a cow hippo that is no longer ever in estrus. And then we'll know, are you uncomfortable with this kind of playing God with our, with our hippo herds? No, I'm just thinking of all the other ways you could, it's utilize, a waste. You could take 80 hippos and do so much. You could, you could uh, put 80 hippos in, in rains and have them pull a giant snow white carriage. You could pull, Eight of them each on ten different carriages, and give every Disney princess its own hippo coach. You could have you could have forty two hippo co- carriages <laughs> and race them gladiator style. Like yeah, exactly like a Ben Hur type race. You know, Jeff Bezos built all those buildings in downtown Seattle, and now everybody's working from home. He's got all these empty, empty office buildings. buildings. Why not put two hippos per floor? And then build a glass elevator. He's and got those two big glass balls. Right. What if each one had 40 hippos in them with... No, there's three balls, right? Two balls? Three balls? It seems like three maybe, is the magic number. Maybe you, maybe you know Jeff a little better than I do. Three... If you put... If you put... Well, now, now we've got 80 divided by three, right? You're going to have... Uh, how many... You're going to have 28 hippos per... Um, per globe? How many hippos... What is 80 divided by three? It's 26 and two thirds, I think. 26 and two thirds hippos. So you got 26 hippos. 26.7 hippos. In, uh, in, in each globe. And then, and then mm. a couple of hippos out running around in the streets. You know what you're going to have then? What? You're going to have patches of bare soil and an unclear circulation route along which to visit the balls. Yeah, there you go. That's one of the problems. I don't know. It just seems like Seattle is a perfect environment for 80 cocaine hippos. And I'm just dismayed. That we're trying to manage the hippos in place yeah. rather than relocate them a second time. Denny Regrade should not be Belltown. It should be Hippotown. Hippotown. Bow, bow, bow. Hippotown, USA. Bow, bow, bow. Is that what you were doing? <laughs> I was actually doing Funky Town, but yeah, oh. but it could be Nirvana. Funky Town. Gonna take you oh, to. Oh, what a bow, great bow, mashup. Hippotown. Do, do, a, do a Funky Town 
smells like Teen Spirit mashup. It starts Somebody out get like on Funky that. Town and turns into boom, 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 boom. Please send in your remix to Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume Twenty Four. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.